Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Uh, As is our practice here at the Dallas Reformed Presbyterian Church, once a month we go through a psalm of the month. As the Psalter is the Christian songbook, the Apostle exhorts us that we must sing with the understanding in 1 Corinthians 14.15. And what we do is, as we survey one of these psalms, uh, and we do so sequentially, so this is the 102nd month where we've been in this series, uh, what we do is we draw out its main themes. Especially for a long psalm like this, we cannot be exhaustive, but we trust that the Lord will illuminate the sense of it, that we may praise him intelligently. So with that then, trusting you are at Psalm 102, please give your attention once again to the reading of God's holy word. These are the very words of God. Let us receive them as such. A prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as an hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I watch and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. Mine enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. For I've eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones, and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth, thy glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary from heaven, did the Lord behold the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years have no end, shall have no end. 
The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. Amen. May God bless such a rich word to us. Let us pray for the preaching. O holy God, we pray that you would now bless the preaching of your holy word. Would you help the minister preach faithfully? Would you help the preacher preach by the power of the Holy Spirit that uh, this would not be the work of the man's flesh and the man's opinions, but instead that you would speak through the preaching of your holy word. Give the preacher the spirit of Christ. And as well, we know that this would all be for naught if that same spirit who inspired our text did not also reside on every heart that heard the word of God now. Open every heart here to receive Christ, Father. And we pray, Father, that to that end, Christ would be magnified in the preaching of the word. Help the preacher glorify Jesus Christ, that he may increase in a heavy heart that is assembled to hear the preaching of the word. And so, Father, now we come and pray before you that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, today, people of God, the church is in great distress. If you would read Ligonier's State of Theology survey, you would find that many professing evangelicals today don't even believe Jesus is God. You would find that many believe there are other ways to God, that Christ alone is not the only way to God. In effect, calling Christ a liar when he said that I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father but by me. And in our nation, you think of the manifestation of the visible church. It often comes with names like Copeland, Hinn, and Osteen. In much of the church, you will not find the gospel preached today. In much of the church, what God wants in worship is never even asked, and idolatry is rampant. In much of the church, and this is really grievous as well, sin is excused. Sin is not disciplined. Sin is pervasive. And worst of all, those who call themselves ministers of God are often the ones who are scandalously committing gross sins. You see that in the news all the time. State continues to grow in power, seeks to subjugate the church of God. And so yes, today... The church is in great distress. But friends, until until the people of God are in distress over the church's distress, through heartfelt repentance, fasting and prayers, pouring out our souls to God, weeping as Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem's rubble, weeping for her as Jesus wept over Jerusalem before her destruction, Until then, beloved, the church will continue her decline. Until we make the church's affliction our affliction, crying out to the Lord to revive her, you will not find the future glories promised in the psalm, which promises that you will see great conversions among all peoples, where kingdoms will be gathered to serve our Lord. What is before us is another psalm, as we have seen so often in the the 90s. Another psalm that teaches us to pray, Thy kingdom come. But especially, 
of use when we see the church in a declined condition, when it seems like the church is shattered and scattered. In other words, it is a psalm for a time such as ours, and it is needful to put into our hearts. Let me just ask the question, when has your heart last mourned and wept as you prayed, thy kingdom come? The psalmist does. The psalmist does. His whole being is in agony as he prays that the kingdom would come, the kingdom would advance, that God would show himself powerfully before his people. It is time, beloved, to take the lament of this psalm and to sing it with pain, but also to do so with hopeful anticipation that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, if we would make uh, the, 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 uh, the, the prosperity of the church, not in the way of the prosperity gospel, but the spiritual prosperity and advancement of the church, our greatest joy, looking to the eternal God of heaven, we believe he will exalt his church in the set time that you find promised in the psalm. And so our theme in the preaching of this psalm is this, that we must make the church's condition our lament but as we do so, that we would look to the everlasting God and anticipate his glorious revival of the church. And we'll do this under three headings. First is the overwhelmed petitioner. Second is the everlasting Jehovah. And third is the promised future. So first, the overwhelmed petitioner. Now, we often like to consider the, uh, the context of the Psalms that we consider But uh, in this particular case, we are uncertain of when it was written or who wrote it. It seems that you could take a good educated guess that this was during the Babylonian exile, before the return to the promised land. For what we find in it is that Zion is in rubble and dust in verses 13 and 14. She has become desolate, in other words. Now we always have to ask, why? Why was the church in this condition? Well, the psalmist understands what so few of us do, that our sin as a church against the God of heaven is what causes his indignation against his bride. Verse 10, the psalmist admits, it is because of thine indignation and thy wrath. What did Jeremiah understand when he surveyed the rubble of Jerusalem? For the Lord hath afflicted her. Why? For the multitude of her transgressions, her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. Lamentations 1 verse 5. And, uh, you know, I know that many of us use the psalm for our own personal lament and affliction. And I'm not saying that is wrong, beloved. But its primary aim is to grieve for the church and to pray for her future glory as you see in verse 16, when the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. I'll cover that a little bit more a little later. But with that context then, as much as we can uh, glean from it, uh, let us consider the inspired title of the psalm, for it is very rich and it could bear a sermon itself. A prayer of the afflicted, when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. The psalmist finds himself afflicted 
and overwhelmed. And again, we have to ask why. Contextually, again, it is over the state of Zion. It is over the church's condition. And so, like I said, while many of us use this personally for our own personal afflictions, and that's fine in many ways, let us never solely use it to that purpose. Let us not neglect its primary purpose, which is to mourn the afflictions of the church. Because, beloved, the man or woman who truly loves Christ will love his bride, which is the church. And when the bride of Christ is in shambles, a godly soul is heartbroken themselves. And they will make the afflictions of Zion their own afflictions. You consider Daniel. You consider Jeremiah. You consider Paul. You consider Christ himself. All have mourned and lamented the condition of the church in their time. Do you remember what the captives in Babylon sang? If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Why? If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Psalm 137 verse 6. What were they singing? They were singing, O God, curse me if I do not prefer Jerusalem over my chief joy. That is what the Lord wants, friends. And the reason that the church often finds itself in shambles is we do not prefer heavenly Jerusalem above our chief joy. And it has little place in our thoughts and affections. But verse 14 says, Thy servants take pleasure in her, that is Zion's, stones, and favor the dust thereof. Even the rubble of the church is precious to believers. And so, we must be afflicted, friends, as we see the church in ruins as it is often today. And until God's people love her and are afflicted and mourn her condition, praying the Lord would revive her from our hearts, until then we will not find revival. No matter how much we say we want it, our souls must be afflicted for the sake of Christ's church. But the title also teaches broader principles, and I want to touch on that this morning, concerning what to do with your anguish and your affliction and when your soul is overwhelmed. No matter what the anguish is, the title teaches you what to do, which is to pour out our complaint, to pour out our heart to the Lord. The psalmist poureth out his complaint. As though he is being poured out, as his heart is like a vessel being poured out before the Lord. And prayer, and this is where we do not find the communion with Christ that we say we desire. Prayer is meant to be a time of deep, deep communion with God. He is telling you, bring all your heart's cares, bring all your heart's complaints to the Lord. Take them to the one person, the one being who can actually do something about your anguish. A general rule you must follow, beloved, is before you complain to a man, you must complain to God. This is often violated by us, friends. And we rarely go to the Lord in prayer. And even more rare for us is pouring out our heart in prayer to the Lord. Beloved, what you have to understand is he already knows the trouble of your heart. And the question is, why are you reticent to pour it out to him? 
Why are you so guarded in prayer? Let me just exhort you, make the Lord your greatest confidant. If you're confiding in, in, in even your own spouse more than you're confiding in the Lord, something is terribly backwards. It is the Lord who must be your greatest confidant. Psalm 61.2, when my heart is overwhelmed, what? Lead me to the rock which is higher than I. That is the calling of the scriptures. You think of, boys and girls, some of the examples in the scriptures are maybe coming to your mind now, children. When Hannah could not bear children, what did she do? She was not like her spiritual mother, Rachel. She was not desperate with Elkanah, her husband, saying to him, give me children or I die. What did she do? She prayed unto the Lord at the temple and wept sore before him, pouring out her heart. And the sad thing is, friends, we have it so much easier than her. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to a temple. That's what Jesus says in John 4. You have direct access to the throne of God through the blood of Christ, Hebrews 4.16. And we are not willing to take that opportunity to go before him. And I will say a real reason we lack intimacy with Christ is because we are in the habit of withholding our troubles from him. We don't pour out our hearts to him day by day. But even now as we think of our theme of the church, right? How did Knox, John Knox, plead in prayer? From Rachel, he learned spiritual desperation. But from Hannah, he learned where to go. He said, give me Scotland or I die. He poured out his heart to the Lord. It was no pretty, eloquent prayer, friends. It was not guarded like ours often are. You think about how we might pray such a prayer. Father, if it be your will, would you cause the gospel to propagate in our day? Amen. And then maybe we go and we open up our smartphone and just start scrolling. That is not the prayer of the godly. Um, And also would say, and I would implore you, friends, if you are praying according to God's will, like praying for the gospel to be propagated, you need to stop it with, if it be your will, (laughs) right? You need to just stop it. You need to just say, God, do what you have promised. And that's why the man could pray, give me Scotland or I die. Give me spiritual children or I die. Because it is the will of God that the nations be turned to Christ and that Jesus Christ would be glorified for his work on the cross. And how different we pray from our psalmist in these first two verses then. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me. In the day when I am in trouble, incline thine ear unto me. In the day when I call, answer me speedily. What does such prayer communicate, beloved? It communicates this, where your faith and hope is. In other words, it says, if he will not help, I will not be helped. And that must be your attitude, beloved. And you know the Lord delights in seeing such faith. He delights in it. You heard it in the centurion last week. And he loves it especially, right? When when you go to him first and you go to him pleading, he loves that your faith is not in men, but in him. He loves that child of God. He loves it. I was thinking about this week. He loves it when your faith is not in Elon Musk or in Donald Trump. He loves it when you go to him, O God. Help me and I will be helped. He loves it when your faith is in him and not in princes. 
You need to take both your heart's troubles and your heart's joys to the Lord in heartfelt prayer. And you will find what you might be lacking now, which is seasons of great intimacy with the Lord when you pray like that. And you will find the peace of Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And what will happen next, boys and girls? And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the psalmist, he communicates his desperation and that his soul's sole hope is in God. He says to God, hear my prayer. Allow my cry to come before thee. Do not hide thy face from me. Those are the words of a man who, whose sole hope is in the Lord. He is as that woman who clutched so desperately after Christ's garments. This is what prayer is. It's the soul clutching after Christ. Find seasons of prayer with the Lord. As Jacob said to God, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. You know, and I want to not have you misunderstand. The psalmist does not pray like this because he thinks that this, this kind of pleading is the only way to get the Lord's attention, like, like Baal's prophets, right, who are making such a noise before him. He can't hear. He doesn't exist. But he, he's not trying to say, God, I know you won't hear me unless I, I do this and I abase myself. No, this is faith speaking, saying, Lord, you are the only one I can turn to, oh God. You're the only one I have really at the end of the day. Because the psalmist is confident that the Lord hears him in verse 17. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. Isn't that a wonderful promise, friends? That's a promise from God. That Jehovah is unlike the rulers of this age who care little or nothing for the destitute. They care about who is the biggest campaign donor, But Jehovah cares about the destitute and he regards the cries of the afflicted and he does not despise their pathetic state. You must know that this is the very character of God beloved in affliction. He takes a special interest in such prayers and does not despise them. You have his ear. And as I've said so many times, the problem is his ear has little to hear because we don't go to him. But he hears it and he is attentive to it. So go to him in prayer. And you think here of how destitute the psalmist is in verses three and five, three to five. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as an hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. His heart is smitten. His heart is broken. His days, he says, are fruitless. They pass like smoke as they have no substance. In spiritual despondency, you recognize this kind of thing happens all the time, don't you? A day ends and you have done little or nothing and the day is consumed like smoke. And his bones are on fire. Job said as well, my bones are burned with heat in Job 30. And he is in such grief, he forgets to eat. He has no appetite for it. You recall, as we considered our sermon on fasting, this is the natural basis for fasting, isn't it? When our soul is uh, consumed with grief, 
over sins or afflictions, personal, ecclesiastical, or national. Fasting comes very naturally. We have no desire for food. We have a desire for the words that come out of God's mouth if we are spiritually sensitive, where we esteem the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And that's what happens, friends, when we are, 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 are grieved, when our soul is grieved over godly things. We don't even need anybody to tell us to fast. It happens naturally. And what you have to see is that these terrible effects on his body are not due to some external disease, friends. It is really the effect of his soul in distress over Zion. And you need to, this is a broader point of application and theology. When our soul is distressed, our body is affected. The Lord has made us a psychosomatic union, that is, a union of body and soul. And you saw that when Jesus groaned in Gethsemane. He said his soul was sorrowful even unto death. His soul's trouble caused so much strain that he sweated blood. And child of God, then, what you need to remember is this, that your body will break down when your soul is in anguish. So when you are downcast, friends, catch it quickly. And as the psalmist did, go to your God in prayer. Go to him. Isn't that what Jesus did in his agony? What was he doing in Gethsemane? He was praying. He was praying to God in the midst of his soul's trouble. And as you investigate why your soul is troubled and you bring it to the Lord, remember or ask with the 42nd Psalm, why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him. That's what you must do when your soul uh, is, is troubled, your days feel like smoke, and your body feels aflame. When your heart is smitten and withers like grass in the burning sun. You know that he regards the destitute and he uh, asks us to praise him. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee. Do you see that? When my soul is cast down, that is the time, child of God, to remember God. Not that you don't remember God at other times. But the problem is, and the reason it's here in the scripture is, when we are downcast, we go to every other place but God. And that ought never be. And adding to the psalmist's affliction is his great loneliness. It's as though nobody cares, friends. He uses the vivid imagery, and sometimes, boys and girls, you might ask, why are these birds here in this psalm? The pelican, the owl, and the sparrow. He says in verses 6 through 7, I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I watch and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. Boys and girls, you know your, uh, uh, anything about birds. You might remember that a pelican in the wilderness is out of his place, isn't he? He is an aquatic bird. And it's interesting because the Hebrew word for pelican, this is a, a play on words, I think, derives from a verb which means to vomit, which is, of course, how they feed their uh, young. But perhaps that's a sign of what the psalmist feels, friends. Lonely, almost as if he is, his body is ready to throw up from the distress Then you have the owl, a lonely bird by nature. You often just see one owl by itself. And then there's the tragedy of the lonely sparrow on the housetop. That's a tragic thing because uh, as I was looking up these things, you find that the sparrow is a sociable bird. They love to flock with one another. In fact, probably boys and girls, you rarely see a sparrow by itself. 
All this is to communicate the psalmist's loneliness, his grief over the church. Haven't the men of God often felt that? What did Elijah feel? I'm all alone. Everybody else has abandoned you, O God, which was not true, of course. But it is the sense that he had. Jeremiah once felt in Lamentations, how doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? And when we consider Zion today, we often have the same feeling, don't we? True churches are often small, weak, and scattered. In many churches, there may be many churches. In many cities, there may be many churches, but there is often shockingly no gospel witness at all in them. You hardly will find a man get up to the pulpit and whether and where his theology lines up with ours, that's not the point. But he rarely will get up and open the word of God and say, thus saith the Lord. I've taken, you've known this, I've, I've mentioned this to you. I have fielded questions online in my work in, on the home missions board and in phone calls even with people who have just discovered our church. And you get a sense of so many who are desperate for just a biblical church. Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, whatever it is. They cannot find a single church in their town where the word of God is preached faithfully. And these souls, you, you hear them. They feel like the psalmist, isolated and lonely. My encouragement to you, friends, is this. Never, never willingly put yourself in such a position. We've had to deal with this a lot. Not in this congregation of people moving, but in other congregations. When you move, move to a place with a biblical church. I praise God that many of you have done this. We, we just prayed for at least two families who are moving. And their primary criteria was, is there a place where we may worship the Lord? Even if it comes at a pay cut. They will say, my first priority is to be with the people of God and to bow down before the Lord. And uh, I pray, if you have a good church, that the Lord, that you would pray, really, that the Lord would bless it and preserve it. What we have, friends, is fragile, easily lost, especially in our own sin and schism. Well, that aside, in verses 8 through 9, the psalmist says, My enemies reproach me all the day, and they, are mad against me. they that are mad against me are sworn against me, for I've eaten ashes like bread. And mingled my drink with weeping. The psalmist is afflicted because the enemies of God are mocking and reproaching the psalmist all the day. Certainly you saw that in the captivity. What did they say? Psalm 137 again. Where is your God? Sing us a song of Zion. They're reproaching Jehovah's people. Because they're saying, well, where is this great God? You say he is king of heaven and earth. And yet here you are in our captivity. The gods of Babylon must be greater than this one true God so-called. Sing us one of your songs that speak of his omnipotence. And you see that today. Believers are mocked for believing this Bible. And whenever I see articles concerning Christianity in a mainstream publication, you look at the comment section and it always draws the ire of the unbelieving world. And you see, this is our reproach. And it's growing in intensity today as the people are more and more wanting to throw off Christ and uh, the ways of the Lord. And uh, even in our own, sometimes this is even nearer than the society out there. Sometimes in our own families, you sadly see a kind of persecution by our families, our friends, our workplaces, our neighbors for the sake of following the Lord. 
often reproached all the day as the people of God. But sadly, friends, and this is what our greater concern must be, is that we ourselves are often the cause of such reproaches coming upon the church. It was in the Babylonian captivity whose sins? Was it the sin of Babylon that caused the church to be in captivity? It was the church's sins that caused God to be wroth with her and raised up the church's enemies. The Lord told Habakkuk he was raising up the Chaldeans to chasten Judah for her sins. And that is why they went into captivity. And we must understand this basic truth. The enemies of God are under God's control. And they are often raised up by God to chastise us for our own lack of faithfulness. Consider verses 10 through 11. Because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. It is the Lord's indignation and wrath against his own church, friends. And how he senses it, right? You look at this imagery, boys and girls. He is being lifted up. He's being thrown up because there is more, you know, you know this from probably your physics classes. There's more potential energy, right, as you lift something up to cast it down. And so he feels like he's being hurled up to be thrown to the floor and to shatter. And that's the imagery here. He feels the Lord has done this. And so when we see the pitiful state of the church, friends, we ourselves are called to search out our own ways. And this is something neglected by us. We must understand the Lord is wroth against his church corporately. Not just, and this is where we go wrong, totally wrong, not just against individual congregations, but against the visible church as a whole. We are all part of the same visible church. And one of the most disgusting things we could ever do, friends, is to think it's those churches out there that are unfaithful. It's the other tribes, the other 11 tribes of Israel that are the problem, Lord. And maybe it is because of denominationalism, which at its root is sourced in schism. It is necessary for now because we do not all agree and we will jealously guard the ways of the Lord as we see them. But denominationalism has blinded us to the truth. There is one visible church on the earth. And what's that composed of, according to our standards? All those who profess the true religion and their children. That's the visible church. You think about this, right? In captivity, which is likely the context here, Daniel and his three friends in Babylon were very faithful men. But he and them all were caught up in the captivity of the church. Because they are what? Part of Zion. And what did he confess in Daniel 9? He confessed the sins of his people, didn't he? Unto us belong confusion of faces. Not unto them, unto us. So do not think the Lord will pass us over because we believe we are more faithful in the RP church. Or that the sins of the church universal are not our sins to own as well. Because that is schismatic thinking. They are our people as well as the people of God. And so much more could be said on all this, and I've gone very long in the first heading. The psalmist, all that to say, is afflicted over the state of the church. He's afflicted, but friends, he is not hopeless. So let us look where he looks. 
which is to the everlasting Jehovah, our second heading. Now, throughout this psalm, there's this beautiful contrast between the transience of the psalmist, whose days, he says, are a smoke with the permanence of Jehovah. In this psalm, you've observed that Lord is in all caps. The name of God revealed to his covenant people, Jehovah, which you remember means I am that I am. And what does that name signify? His eternity, his self-existence, his absolute independence from every creature. He just is. No beginning, no end. I am that I am. And the really wonderful thing about that, beloved, is because he is everlasting. The church will be everlasting as well. Verse 12. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever and thy remembrance unto all generations. Do you see where the psalmist gets his comfort, friends? That the Lord is everlasting. That the Lord will cause himself to be remembered in every generation. Right? And that means then, friends, that the church will never ever be stamped out. It will never cease. Because as God is eternal, his church will be eternal as well. It will even even endure in glory, friends. And in every age, you think about this. This verse has been proven and this verse has been vindicated. The church has always endured, even right after the fall, even in the flood, even in Egypt, even in Babylon, even in Rome. And the question we must ask is, was this our doing? Did we outsmart and outmaneuver the enemies of God? And the answer is no. It is because the Lord endures, we endure forever. Our hope, the psalmist is teaching us, is in the eternal nature of Jehovah and his immutability. Malachi 3.6, you remember this well. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. What is the only reason? The only reason, he says, you are not consumed, because I do not change. I have sworn a covenant oath to never abandon you, and I can never change. And so the church will always endure, and the church will even carry on into eternity. But there's a broader application here, friends. When in anguish, you must remember who your God is. You must know who he is, and you must believe that he is by faith. If you will take one exhortation today, take this. Know your God well from the scriptures. Know his divine being. Know his divine attributes. Know his divine character. Know such thoughts as this. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Exodus 15.11 Know that the Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Psalm 103.19 Know that before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Psalm 90 verse 2 Know that there is, and this is a simple one, boys and girls, there is none good but one. That is God, Mark 10, 18. No, this is also simple, but often missed. God is love throughout 1 John 4. 
Know that the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. Psalm 145, verse 8. So on and so on and so on, friends. You must see him, the great Jehovah, as the only hope for you and for the church. Now, if you want something practical to do there, you can turn to your confession second chapter sometime and look at all the scripture proofs that come for who God is and let it guide you to the scripture that you may know God. And this is something that is so necessary for us, friends. The hope of the church is not in her ministers. The hope of the church is not in her own faithfulness, but rather in the eternity and immutability of faithful Jehovah. You remember that the Church of Scotland adopted the burning bush as its logo. You remember that? The motto of the church was, what? Yet it was not consumed from Exodus 3.2. Because the church in her distress and her trials is like that bush that burned but was not consumed. Why? Because God is in her midst. And because God endures The church will endure as well. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her. And that right early, Psalm 46, verse 5. And so, in verses 27 through 28, the psalmist reiterates this idea. But thou art the same. You see that? Unchanging. And thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue. And their seed shall be established before thee. What a wonderful promise, friends that we will continue, and even our children will continue, and our seed will be established before him. He is truly a God to us and our children. And the church's weakness, then, is found in that we don't know our God as we should. And so we rarely turn to him like this. We rarely see his divine attributes. We rarely draw near to him. We rarely see his holiness. We rarely see his power. We rarely see his compassion. And we don't draw near to him. And when we do draw near to him, we are not like Moses who had the sense, spiritually at least, to remove our shoes. Knowing that this is a holy and awesome God. And so we don't humble ourselves before the Lord. You think about men like Daniel and Nehemiah and others have, right? They hear the the call of the Lord. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear, heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14 This is God's prescription, friends. Now I want to. We can't miss this. Our text has a special reference to Jesus. God come in the flesh for us. Uh, you remember in our time in Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 10, and 11 cite verses 25 to 26 as a reference to Christ. Of old... Thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, speaking of Christ's creative power, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. What does the Bible say of Jesus? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, isn't he? And because our Savior, who has loved us and bled for us, endures forever, We, his church, as his people, who are bought by his precious blood, will endure forever. He will not let us go, friends. He says here, even this present world he has created, and the heavens themselves will will perish. And sometimes we look at the great mountains, right? We look at the stars, and we think permanence is etched upon them all. 
And we think that we ourselves are transient. But it's the other way around, friends. All of that will change. But we will endure because Jesus Christ endures forever. As the eternal Jesus says, he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. And so let the earth be moved and the waters roar as in the 46th Psalm. But we must put our eyes on Jesus who rules at God's right hand and we will not fear as that Psalm says. And so our anguish is replaced with great hope and confidence. The psalmist has founded himself in verse 13. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time is come. The time has come to favor Zion. O Lord Jesus, the set time is come. And should you not then, friends, be of good cheer. The Lord has set a time to show the church his favor. He believes this. Do you? Did he not show it powerfully to the exiles, if this is a psalm of exile? Did he not show it powerfully to the exiles on the day the Lord stirred up in such great astonishment to the world, his servant Cyrus, to write, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord is God be with him, and let him go up. First Chronicles 36. The set time had come in the exile for the favor of the Lord. What we must do as we are in anguish over the church is pray, Arise, Lord, arise. May this be the set time you have decreed to show your church favor, Jesus. Now, some might say, well, then maybe this is a historical song. Maybe the set time has come and gone when Jerusalem was rebuilt with Cyrus's decree. That's not the case. That was just a foretaste. This is preserved for us not as a book of history, but as scripture to sing. And Jerusalem's rebuilding was not the end. And this psalm has many, many promises unfilled by Cyrus's decree. So let's consider that lastly, our promised future as our last heading. Consider verse 18, which goes against that kind of thinking that this is a historical psalm only. This shall be written for who? The generation to come and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. This was not written for the psalmist's day, but it was written for us and those who are to come. Because we see here more tokens of this, that the Lord will have mercy. And we're going to find that the Lord will cause those dead in their sins and trespasses to be born again. To go from spiritual death to life. The everlasting gospel of the everlasting Christ is shown to be the church's hope in our text. The next two verses say it. Verses 19 through 21. Next three, rather. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. This is from our call to worship. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. The Lord will set loose, beloved, those who are not captive to Babylon, but those who are captive to sin, Romans 7.23. And captive to the wages of sin here, right? We see this, that are appointed to death. Is that not the appointment for sin's wages? The wages of sin is death. And what a beautiful text this is, that the Lord of glory has beheld us from above. 
He has remembered us and come down for us in the person of Jesus Christ and was crucified for our sins to set us free. And now by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, his redemption is applied to men throughout the earth. And so, friends, you find here very plainly in our psalm, the remedy for the church's declined state will be the restoration of the gospel. When the name of the Lord is proclaimed and men preach, ye must be born again, then the Lord will loose those appointed to death. And what happens after that? His praise will ring out. As it has from you, if you are converted today, you have praised the Lord. Why? Because he has given you a new heart. He's given us a heart to praise our God. And that's exactly what happens in conversion. And so we must pray, friends, in in anguish that the church would return to preaching the gospel, friends. Not preaching charismania and entertainment. Not even interesting and intriguing Bible studies. But return to where every minister would say, Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Where every Christian might say, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we must pray the church would return to, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the saddest things, friends, to behold. And I was converted after 30 years, but I came out of paganism. But for many of you who have lived as a Christian for all of your life, I hear time and time again how you had not heard the gospel at all until very recently in your life, though you were in a Christian church. Do you know the good news, friends? Have you heard it? Have you taken it for yourself? Have you heard that all are sinners, you yourself, myself as well, great sinners appointed to eternal death, that our sins send us to hell, justly so, but that the gospel, which means good news, is this. That God, out of his great love, sent into the world his only begotten son to be the savior of all who would believe on him. But great news that is, that by his stripes, by his blood, you can be forgiven and cleansed. That's the true faith. That is true Christianity. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Putting your faith in Jesus alone for salvation. Turning away from your sin, which is what is meant by repentance. Hearing such blessed promises as this, the Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. You see that in this psalm. He that believeth on the Son has what? Everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God abideth on him. John 3, 35-36. If you never heard the gospel before, go look it up. Flee to Christ, friend, for refuge from the wrath of God, and you will then blessedly know, as so many of us do, God as our Father, as the one you can pour your heart out to, as the psalmist does, and you will find everlasting life. But why is the church in so great shambles, friends? Because it is rare today to find somebody preaching that gospel. But the set time is coming, beloved, and that's the hope of the psalm. The set time is coming when Jesus will arise and send out his gospel powerfully by his spirit in power to revive the churches of God as we humble ourselves and see the glorious effects of the gospel in verse 22 as prisoners are loosed from their bondage to sin when the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. This is the great effect of the gospel converting souls, friends. Kingdoms will come to serve the Lord. 
This is how you know the psalm was never fulfilled in coming out of the Babylonian captivity. The kingdoms did not come to serve the Lord in that time, did they? This is yet to be. This is what we anticipate as the gospel goes forth and Christ goes conquering to conquer. And if this will not happen then, friends, then God is a liar, for it has not yet been done. But if we knew our God, we would know God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Numbers twenty-three nineteen. He will make good on this text, beloved. And that is what fuels missions. That is what fuels evangelism. That is what fuels the gospel hope that we have, friends. That all men would not, not for the sake of having a, a big church or anything like that, but instead that Jesus Christ would be glorified on the earth. That all men would see him who was high and lifted up, once in that great state of humiliation. That men would exalt him for his powerful work on the cross. For him coming down from heaven, taking on the form of a servant. That he may minister grace to us who deserve wrath. And when the church is revived, the peoples will come and seek her out, friends. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Zechariah 8.23 Are we talking about ethnic Jews here? No. Because the apostle says, He is a Jew which is one inwardly. In other words, born again, believing in Christ, Romans 2.29. And so one day the pagans will come to the church and say, we will go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Now what's remarkable, and this is a point of interest I just was meditating on, what is remarkable is according to the reversal in Romans 11, that in the future the ethnic Jews will come to us and say, we will go with you for we have heard that God is with you. They will recognize their Savior one day, and they will come to us to go to him. That we, right as the apostle says, who have received mercy, they might receive mercy through our mercy, is what Romans 11 says. And so they will come to the church, and they will admit that Emmanuel, God is with us in the church, and they will be converted as the apostle Paul was converted, as the other uh, 12 disciples were converted to Christ. And when many peoples are converted to Christ, what will they tell their kings? What will they tell their rulers? Again, we go back to Romans 1, and I ask the question, what would happen if 51% of the American population were converted? They would tell their politicians, what? Kiss the Son and serve the Lord with gladness. That's the natural disposition of conversion. And you will find the promise of God that kings will be our nursing fathers and queens our nursing mothers in Isaiah 49, 23. And that will come to pass. Well, much more could be said on this psalm. Like I said, it is a big psalm. But what, at the end of the day, make the church's sorry state your own anguish, beloved. Pour out your complaint to Christ. He will receive it, friends. In in a lot of ways, the psalm is showing us he is waiting for us to do it. And we're not doing it. He awaits us humbling ourselves or asking him. He's waiting for the people of God to say, Arise, Lord. The set time has come. Send your gospel in power. He is waiting for us to put our hope 
entirely in him and not in princes. He is waiting for us to repent and turn from our wicked ways. He wants us to take up psalms of lament like this that lament the state of his bride instead of superficial little ditties about how wonderful we are. But he also wants us to maintain hope that the best days of the church were not in the first century or in the 17th century, but that the best days of the church are ahead. Don't fall into the trap many Reformed people do, which is to ask, why, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? What was God's chastisement? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 10. One day, beloved, according to the psalm and the whole counsel of God, historians will write that the Second Reformation, the Solemn League and Covenant, uh, they will look at that and say, that was nothing. That was absolutely nothing compared to the glories to come in the centuries after. I have no idea when that will be. It may not be in our lifetime. But God will do it for the sake of His Son's glory. So, until then, we will pray as Daniel, humbling ourselves, seeking the good of Zion, gathering in soul by soul by the gospel, until the Spirit is pleased to revive the churches of God, knowing that the second petition, thy kingdom come, will be answered on the day that Jesus has ordained. May God hasten that day when Jesus will arise to do it. Amen. Please rise for prayer as able. O Lord our God, arise, O God, and uh, revive your churches. Father, even our own humbling of ourselves is not something we can do in the flesh. So give us the spirit of humility. May we remember that it is not just individually, but even corporately, that those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God will be exalted in due time. And so, Father, we pray that we would be a people who would consider our wicked ways, that we would turn to the God of heaven, that we would look to the abundant, plenteous mercies of Jesus Christ. Help us to look to you, O God. Help us to look above this present world, and let us look to you, the everlasting Jehovah. Help us see that in you is all sufficiency. You don't need anything. You don't need any of us to advance your church. But if you are pleased to do so, Father, we pray. Send us, O oh God, to help advance your church. Would you cause the glory of your beloved Son to spread across the earth, that many men would call upon the name of the Lord, and that Christ would be acknowledged by peoples and nations across the globe. For we say, worthy is the Lamb for such honor. And so, Father, we would pray that you who have caused your Son to be humbled so greatly for sinners would see him exalted throughout the earth, that many men would acknowledge that this is your beloved son and that he alone is the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to you but by him. May you glorify your son, that he would glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.